Welcome to the European Greens podcast, where we talk about the way forward to a greener and fairer Europe, together with green leaders and activists. The European Greens are a European political party that brings together national parties sharing the same green values, like democracy, feminism, support of LGBTQ+, and climate action. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, and together, let's green our future. Hello and welcome back on the Green Talking Heads. I'm your host, Sarah, and you're listening to a new episode where we're going to focus on gender-based violence. My guest today is Thierry Reintke. Thierry is a politician, feminist, who has been a member of the Greens EFA group in the European Parliament since 2014. Thierry campaigned for women's rights, the rights of LGBTQI plus people, and against the exploitation of European workers. In today's episode, Terry and I discussed the main hurdles towards the end of gender-based violence, despite the many facts and statistics that proves how urgent of an issue it is, the need to work with more modern definitions of gender-based violence that are more inclusive and intersectional, the political optimism required to work on these issues, and the main green demands when it comes to that. So thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for being here and for being part of the Green Talking Heads today. Um, and I think to start with, I just want to ask, how are you today? What are the energies that you come into the episode with? And how are you feeling? I think to start with, one of the things that we love to do in the Green Talking Heads is contextualize and define. And because we're going to talk about gender-based violence today, if you could start by giving us a working definition of gender-based violence and also, you know, start by uh, maybe taking us through why do we need a European directive to, to tackle this? Well, when we address gender-based violence, as you probably know, we like to make a reference that is deeply rooted in basically feminist theory and um, the feminist struggle also over the past years, because violence does not occur in our societies without a context. So gender-based violence is basically a form of violence that happens to people because of their gender, meaning obviously um the gender, but also gender identity and gender expression. Um, and now uh, we are facing finally, after many years of a lot of work that uh, a lot of people have put into this, the moment where um, we have a directive against gender-based violence proposed on the European level. And obviously, this is, first of all, a moment of great celebration because a lot of people have fought for this for a very long time. And um, because we see that gender-based violence is such a widespread problem in our societies in patriarchal society specifically, but obviously it's also a moment to, to look at what maybe we can still improve about the proposal that is on the table. And I think that's the debate that we are very much in right now. Can you maybe tell us uh, what are the, the main Greens demands uh, in this context? I mean, I have maybe already hinted to it a little bit because first of all, and I think it's also important to take a moment and just to, to say it again and again, we are very, very happy that this proposal is there um, because as I said, it has been a longstanding demand and especially with the, the recent backlash on women's rights and gender equality we have seen also inside of the European Union. I mean, the situation in Poland, for example, the situation in Hungary where we have authoritarian governments that are really head on attacking all the progress that we have made in terms of um, feminist demands over the past years. 
I think it's a it's a great step that now we have this proposal where we want to go forward and really you know stand up to this big problem of gender-based violence in our societies. Having said that, but uh, obviously uh, we uh, still see that there is space to make it even better than what is on the table right now, because. As I said, there is the question of what perspective you are taking, and um, we would like to have an, an as inclusive perspective as possible. The proposal that we have right now um, is, uh, at least in parts of it, very much focused on violence against women, which is absolutely important and crucial. Um, but we would like to have um, all people who are affected by gender-based violence also included in this. So, for example, specifically trans people, intersex people who also face gender-based violence, even if they are not women or don't identify as women. So this is one of the things where I think we are going to put a lot of effort into now that this proposal is going to go in the parliamentary process. And the second point, and that is also regarding scope, but not the people that we want to include, but more um, the forms of violence that we want to include. We would like to have a, a very holistic scope of what gender-based violence means under this proposal. And there are very good definitions in the proposal, for example, when it comes to rape, when it comes to um, FGM, and also when it comes to cyber violence, because cyber violence or computer violence, computer crime, as it's called in the treaties, is something where we have a very clear legal base, but we would still like to expand it. Um, and there we are meeting a little bit, and this is also a discussion that we have been having, the limitations of what we so far have in the treaties. But in the scope that we have so far, we want to go, uh, we want to make it as holistic as possible and including as many forms of violence as possible and protecting as many people as possible from gender-based violence. So these I would say, are the main issues from the Green perspective that we want to improve about the proposal. I, I just wanted to take a moment here to um, talk about, you know, tackling this from a, from an institutional and structural perspective. And so in an opinion piece that you wrote uh, that's called Why the EU Urgently Needs to Act on Gender-Based Violence, you did mention some stats, which I think is really important uh, to mention and to state when we have, you know, these this conversations. And so just to quote here, um, cases of gender-based violence skyrockets during every type of emergency, in conflict, economic crisis, natural disasters, and disease outbreaks. And so here you gave uh, some examples. So in France, for example, during the first few months of the lockdown, cases of gender-based violence went up by 30%. And the United Nations has called the tragic turns of events a shadow pandemic. Data from the Italian National Statistics Institute shows that calls um, to a gender-based violence hotline increased in Italy by um, 59% in 2020, which is huge in comparison to 2019. In Greece, a government hotline received uh, a 230% increase in just one month following lockdown. So it's a very obvious, measurable and tangible you know, issue, um, but that's still somehow not getting enough attention as it should. And so what have, what have you observed um, to be like the biggest hurdles towards the end uh, of gender-based violence at an institutional level? I would say that the institutions most of the time reflect societal problems as a whole. So it still seems to be the case that turning away and you know closing your eyes uh, regarding gender-based violence is much easier than it should be. And I think this was also the problem when we were fighting for this directive that maybe now you know around the International Day Against Violence Against Women or around International Women's Day you have some awareness or you have a, a societal debate around it. But most of the time, it is still very easy to just not talk about it, just, you know, cover it up, not even, you know, just 
ignore that it exists because very often the people that are affected by it are already marginalized and the more marginalized they are, the more difficult it is for them to make it such a big political issue that you would actually have uh, action, political action against it. And I think this has been the case for many, many decades. I mean, the legislation we have had, we, we have introduced uh, inside of the European Union in the member states, for example, criminalizing rape, um, every tiny step about it was years of campaigning of feminist activists. So I'm not very surprised by the fact that it took so long and that it was so difficult to get this directive because apparently still, especially in power structures like, for example, the European institution, you very often pay no political price if you just don't address these issues. Instead, when you are addressing them, you face a lot of opposition, and that's why things didn't move forward for a very long period of time. I think that because of the great mobilization that we have seen in the past years, this has changed a little bit. So we could see that suddenly there was more attention to cases of, for example, feminicide. There, there, were, there was more attention to the Istanbul Convention, which was a very groundbreaking uh, agreement uh, against gender-based violence. And um, also the setbacks that we experienced, I think there were kind of cat catalysators. I don't know if you say that in English. Um, uh, to to really fuel this debate. Uh, and through that, uh, now we are luckily at a point where at least this proposal is on the table. And from here, I hope that we can then really move to a situation where first, obviously, we adopt it on a European level. But then, and you know, we just discussed with civil society organization working on this, you can adopt the greatest laws if they are not enforced, if they are not implemented on the ground, they don't make the difference that um, that they actually should. So, even if we have this proposal now and celebrate and we are happy about it and want to improve it, and there is still a long way to go to actually create a situation where more is done against gender-based violence in our societies. So it's very important to, to keep pushing and to keep highlighting what a big problem gender-based violence is in our societies. I think just because this question is also, you know, highlighting how much um, the, the gender-based violence just increase whenever there's, you know, uh, uh, massive issues in, in society, I think we can talk about and link it to a very, uh, um, uh, you know, current situation that we have with the war in, in Ukraine. And I don't know if you would have, you know, anything to, to mention as to how does it look like concretely at a European level, things that are already in place or that we can, we can use um, towards supporting women in these situations. I mean, I was in Ukraine, um, and I think one of the most striking well, takeaways that I have from this very insightful but also very shocking visit is that, again, and this is not something new, but it is, I think, something that needs to be mentioned and made, made explicit again and again, um, sexualized violence is used as a weapon of war also in this conflict. Um, and it's, it seems to be something that is used very systematically, obviously to attack the civilian population, but also to put pressure on the other side, on the, on the other war party to, um, to surrender. Um, and looking at that, I mean, first of all, there is a very specific need to obviously document and then go against these, these crimes that have been committed, also to do everything we can to protect the civilian population. Um, like, for example, putting more pressure to, to have humanitarian corridors for civilians that are still uh, in areas that are under very heavy fighting to provide more humanitarian help on the ground because these 
victims or survivors of sexualized violence, um, they will need very specific support as well. Um, and I mean that for the people in U who are still in Ukraine, but I also mean that for refugees from Ukraine who are now arriving inside of the European Union, it really ranges from psychological support, but also especially victims and, and survivors of, of sexualized violence, if they uh, need to have access to abortion care, if they need to have access to any form of other health care, um, to really provide that on the ground. Um, and this is something where I think we also have to push from the European level, because we know that there are countries like, for example, Poland, which is the country that at the moment is receiving most of the, the refugees from Ukraine inside of the European Union, um, that this is not something that is a given. So to say that um, especially people who have survived these horrible and atrocious crimes, that they need all the support that we can give psychologically, medically, and in all other ways to help them in this traumatizing situation. But, and I think that that's the next step, also linking these issues again to a broader debate, because I think that um, something like sexualized violence as a weapon of war is not, again, happening out of context. It is deeply rooted in patriarchal societies and in a very patriarchal power structure, um, and that shows in wars, but that also shows then in the post-conflict society and to address that um, in the processes, in the peace building that will come afterwards, but also in, again, questions of, for example, political representation, um, because we know that issues like this will be addressed much more if you have a more inclusive decision-making, and that would also mean to have, for example, women better represented in politics. And that applies, obviously, then to Ukraine or countries that, that have gone through war and conflict. But this also applies to the European Union and the European institutions. Because maybe one more reflection about why this issue of gender-based violence for such a long time was not addressed the way that it should be. It is also because, you know, the, the higher you get in the political uh, decision-making, the less women you have the less people from, you know, marginalized backgrounds you have. And this also means that the less of maybe a perspective on problems like this you have. Um, and I think that needs to change in order for us not to oversee problems like this uh, anymore for such a long time. I'm very happy that you mentioned, you know, the fact that all of this is rooted in patriarchy. And when it comes to that, there's, there's often a narrative around uh, you know, empowering women to, to fight back against uh, the violence they might face or gender minorities as a, as a, as a whole. And very rarely towards the people who perpetuate this violence. Uh, and actually they sometimes do with way too little um, consequences. And so what do you think would be the most efficient way um, to tackle gender-based violence from that angle? And would it be around like just prevention measures or including things around education, uh, awareness raising campaigns? Like what would be the most efficient? Maybe to say first that I think in now, especially the directive, but also the Istanbul Convention, to first have a very victim-centered um, um, approach that makes a lot of sense. Because I think that first, when you encounter a problem like gender-based violence, to say, what do the victims, the survivors of gender-based violence need and how can we create political structures that provide what they need? I think that is very important. Having said that, what you are saying is absolutely right. Over the past years, we have also seen that gender-based violence has become, in the political debate, a little bit of a women's issue. You know, it's like women who are working on it, women who are trying to change the situation. It's, it's almost as if, you know, 
we are the ones who who now have to solve these problems and that actually come from you know patriarchal structures that we are really not profiting and benefiting from you know so um i believe that uh, obviously there a little bit of a responsibility shift also has to happen i mean we had this a lot in the debates around sexual harassment in me too, on me too that you know the people who were working in the European Parliament, I think it's in general like this with gender-based violence, are in the very, very large majority women. So to to feel more that there is also a responsibility coming from the side of men. Um, but, and I think that that's also um, what should be reflected in the proposal, to have programs, to have initiatives, to have also a civil society response that is really targeting the perpetrators which are in most cases men. So this then as a second step is absolutely crucial because I think that this is also something that we have learned. The problem will only really change when the people who are causing the problem understand that it's a problem and then also shift their behavior. And I am not necessarily talking about, you know, men who repeatedly uh, beat up their, their partners. I'm talking about, um, an awareness that already starts in a completely different setup because making sexist remarks, creating uh, an uncomfortable environment for for women in bars or, you know, in when they go out in the public swing in general, this is already very often creating a, a ground for then later on cases of gender-based violence. So I think that this preventative approach that you would raise awareness and that you specifically also target men. Uh, I know that the police in Scotland recently had, I think, a very successful campaign where gender-based violence was, the issue of gender-based violence was really targeted at men and they were sort of put into a subject position and really said, like, it's men who are, who are committing these crimes, you know, who are committing this violence. I think that that is a, a very uh, important approach but obviously, and I think that this is something that we will have to deal on a political level with, um, also getting more men in, um, you know, fighting for these kind of directives, for these kind of political measures to, to do something against gender-based violence. Another very thick layer to gender-based violence is institutional violence that perpetuates, you know, a lot of the victim blaming and sometimes people from the police or from, you know, uh, judges, social services professionals are just very clearly not trained to also welcome this kind of um, issues and to know how to deal with victims. And, and that's the reason why many victims do not continue or sometimes don't even start the mm. process towards like, you know, um, justice and potential reparations. And so why in your view would be um, a realistic way or realistic ways towards a, a better, more respectful, a safer process when it comes to the, the journey that victims have to go through? Uh, when it comes to uh, to justice, would it be yeah maybe some trainings or for law enforcement officers? I think the response to them has to be twofold. I mean, on the one hand, exactly what you are saying, I think there needs to be better training, and I'm, I'm not only speaking about police officers or the police as a whole, but also personnel in the justice system in general, because there is not only a problem with police; there is very often also then a problem when cases actually reach courts. We have member states where I would assume there is clearly a problem with underreporting of cases of gender-based violence. But for them, it makes the situation uh, obviously more comfortable because in official crime statistics, they have much lower numbers of people who are actually reporting gender-based violence. So you have this weird situation where countries um, where people just don't go to the police to report cases 
uh, look like they have less uh, less of a problem with gender-based violence. And I think that this is something we have to break. And this is also why we need to have this push from the European level to have better training, but also to have more reliable data collection, because also there is a very big divergence between how member states collect data. And we need to harmonize that to a certain extent, because otherwise it is just very, very difficult to compare and then also to work with certain data when it comes to gender-based violence. This is all something that takes time. We know that, you know, training police officers, training personnel and justice systems and so on and so on. It's not, it's not something that can happen in the next month or even years. So I think this, this approach, this other side of the approach also to bring in other actors that can provide support to victims is very important. Because there are people, and we had this debate also again with the civil society organizations that are working on this, who don't necessarily like to go to the police because they have had a lot of negative experiences with police, maybe because they are, you know, they don't have a legal status in the member state, they don't feel that they are being listened to, and so on and so on. So to create a support structure by civil society organizations, also very targeted civil society organizations, where these people can feel comfortable speaking about their experience and then supporting them to bringing it into the legal system. And I think both of these sides of the approach are very important. So to have, obviously, at the end of the day, in an ideal world, a police and justice system that is inclusive to all and where everybody can go, but on the other hand, as long as we are not there, and I think we are still quite far away from that, to create a situation where also civil society actors, organizations that have a lot of experience can support people who might face more difficulties or barriers to, to get access to justice. Um, and this is also part of the directive. But here again, and for me, it's very important to say that we can have the best directive on a European Union level. We also need to see the enforcement and then implementation in the member states. And I can already see that there is going to be some opposition, let's say. So I think that taking this into account, having this really victims-based approach again, and then pushing it all the way through from this proposal to the directive, then to a, a very good implementation on the ground. Um, it's a lot of work, but um, that would really change the situation for, for the people and for people who are affected by gender-based violence. And I, I really agree. I think that a lot of these things takes so much time and I actually don't know if we'll be alive to see, you know, massive changes uh, when it comes to all this. I want to believe so. But one thing I have a lot of hope in uh, is the new generation are just much more vocal about these issues, much more inclusive in their discourses, much more aware of their rights and, and all of the things. And I'm wondering if you would have uh, examples, you know, uh, in the in the European Union in terms of educating the generations that are to come. I know that, for example, in some of the Nordic countries, they were teaching um, kids already like between four and six years old about being in touch with their emotions, expressing things that they're not uh, okay with, and just making sure kids could have access to all, all of these tools to better, you know, manage their emotions. So also in terms of education, you know, I'm wondering if there's already things that we can have hope about that are already uh, in place that we can be inspired from. I, I totally think so. And I'm, I'm generally a very optimistic person. And I think without optimism, also, you cannot really be in politics <laughs> because if you don't feel that things can get better eventually, uh, I think uh, this job or, you know, being politically active is just so frustrating. So um, I absolutely agree. I think that younger people already have a much bigger awareness around these issues. And I also, let's take a, a concept like consent, for example. This is something that if you would go back 
20, 30 years, maybe it was debated in feminist circles. You know, it was something that we were creating narratives around. But I think today it plays such a such a more central role in political and legal discourses. I mean, this is one of the examples from the Istanbul Convention where you had a definition of rape as absence of consent. And this is something that had to be developed in legal terms and political terms. And now we are there. And this is also what is the basis of the definition of rape uh, in, in the Directive Against Gender-Based Violence. So I think these kind of things that play a bigger role, they can also really shift discourses and they can shift how people talk about certain things. I think that the Me Too debate, I mean, obviously we would have all wanted it to have a much bigger impact even, but I think it did create more attention and more awareness around questions of sexual harassment, sexualized violence in general, and also in the end, gender-based violence. So I'm hopeful. Um, I also think that we are much more ready or much more equipped maybe to to mobilize to you know when something happens we allow when something happens we, we we speak up we are not silent and i think that all of these things can then create a dynamic that will really shift things on the ground and already now like i mean just to give one positive example and i know you know i'm a white middle class woman so probably i'm not like such a, like, I cannot be taken as the, the ultimate example. But when I had an experience with, uh, with sexual harassment, the reaction of the police was really something that I think without the long debates around sexual harassment, around the Istanbul Convention, around gender-based violence, wouldn't have happened. Because the way I was treated, the, the way I was approached, the way things were taken seriously about what had happened to me was something I think 20, 30 years ago would not have happened that way. And I think sometimes it's these little things that shouldn't overshadow the big problems we still have. Absolutely not. But these instances where we can see, yes, it takes very long. It is very difficult. It's it's too long. It's too difficult. But there is hope. There is a possibility that institutions change and that we can deal with problems in a society in a different way. And um, that's also what I hope is going to be the reaction then to, to this um, directive against gender-based violence from the European level. Because as we said in the campaign, we have waited too long. The time is now and we have to act now. I love that. And the optimism. Yes, we need that. <laughs> I love it. I just, just one last question. And, you know, you did mention that indeed you are a white uh, middle class woman. However, one thing that I really, really appreciate uh, about your approach and your work is that it's intersectional and that you really, really try um, as much as you know possible to, to evolve from the outdated definition of gender based violence, which is very binary and really go towards something that's much more inclusive of, you know, different gender identities and also making an emphasis on the fact that people from the queer community, particularly trans women, people from racialized identity, people from economically precarious backgrounds are exposed to much more interpersonal, but also structural violence. So I just wanted uh, for you to tell us a little bit more about that and maybe how does that ideally translate into policymaking as well? I think that this is what maybe the proposal that is on the table right now coming from the commission does not reflect as much as we would like it to. So this is definitely going to be the place also where we want to put more work into. 
And I think one of the issues that we have already touched upon a little bit is this like really targeted, also focused on the specific needs of certain groups, victim support. And because obviously you can say, you know, you create a one size fits all. And then this is a way to address issues when you have experienced gender-based violence that everybody can react to. In reality, we know that this is very often biased, that, you know, things like this are set up in a way that it serves more the needs and maybe the, the, the approach that, that certain groups in society need, um, but others are, are, are excluded more. Um, and I think this whole question of, for example, how comfortable do you feel with interacting with police? That is so heavily dependent on, you know, what experience you have had. And we know that there is a bias of police officers, how they treat different people. So for me, what is important is to say, yes, the police will have to play a role in this. Absolutely. But how can we also create systems and, you know, support that is not targeted, that is not focused and centered around only you have to go to the police to report the case of violence that you have um, suffered from. Um, and I think this is something obviously now we are also discussing very specifically about the needs of women with disabilities and people with disabilities and how they can be better supported also when they when they seek justice. We are going to have debates again. The notion of men and women indeed comes from the treaties. That is something that we need to work on. Um, and I can understand that the commission says we have a certain limitation there, but in this context, how can we make it as inclusive as possible? How can we say, you know, there are not only men and women in the world and we want to protect everyone from gender-based violence and specifically groups who are disproportionately high in being affected by gender-based violence. And that is not only cis women, that is trans women, that is also trans men, that is uh, intersex people. Um, and that plays a role, you know, that plays into it. So um, what we are looking at right now is also to see how we can link this proposal on the directive against gender-based violence with other legislative and legal proposals that are going to come. And um, for example, we are going to have the suggestion to add hate crime and hate speech to the list of EU crimes, um, which would play a very important role also to link gender-based violence um, to hate crime and hate speech because they are very often overlapping. They are very often um, going going together to look at specifically the digital sphere with the Digital Services Act and to see how also their specific groups are more affected. Yes, women, but also queer people. Again, you know, people of color, people from, from migrant background, and so on and so on. So how can we link this in the approach for, you know, fighting against gender-based violence with other legislative issues as well? And then, I mean, for me, and I know that this is also going to be something that inside of the, of the feminist movement and of, you know, progressive emancipatory movement, we'll have to work on one of the lessons learned, and I have been in the European Parliament now for eight years, um, is that Sometimes there are conflictual ideas, there are also different approaches to different things. But at the end of the day, if we want to change this society and if we want to make it better, more inclusive and more livable for everyone, we are the strongest when we work together. So I really hope that also in this debate well, on gender-based violence and the different, uh, the different proposals that are on the table right now to fight it, we will realize that if we want to be successful, we have to work and push as much as we can for an as inclusive 
um, an as uh, strong and forward-looking proposal and then to join forces and to shake things up and again create a society um, that is free from violence and free from discrimination for everyone. Beautiful final words. Thank you so much, Terry. Thanks a ton for tuning in to another episode of The Green Trucking Heads. Gender-based violence is a very sensitive and complex issue, so it was amazing to have Terry to take us through the different opportunities and, and challenges in such a clear and inviting way. I think it's so important to cover you know, the institutional and structural aspects of gender-based violence and not just the interpersonal also have a victim-centered approach while also thinking of the ways to tackle the issues of the people perpetuating that violence, which is not an easy task. Um, but Terry is doing a, an impressive job, uh, being very active in many fronts. So it was super to have her perspective on all of this. One thing to absolutely check out is the campaign by the Greens EFA called Fight for the End of Gender-Based Violence. And one of the demand is to put an end to systemic form of violence by supporting civil society activists throughout Europe in their pursuit of a feminist future. Also make sure to follow Terry on all social media as she's pretty active and we'll put all the necessary links in the description of the episode as always. If you enjoyed the episode, do leave us five stars or a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues, tell your people. And for the freshest info and updates, do not spend another second without following The Greens on all social media. Ask us questions, interact, and we will see you very soon. Thank you.